The scripture reading for tonight is John chapter 20, verse 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It could be that the rise of the interwebs has completely changed things in regard to the introvert-extrovert issue. There was sort of this notion that extroverts ran the world and introverts were misunderstood and just because they couldn't jump up or shout or express themselves immediately that somehow culturally they had to take a back seat. But now since the loudest voices uh, are, come from things you click on, the notion is that the realm of the introvert sitting, thinking, and writing thoughtfully, um, now introverts can finally are beginning to rise to the top. I don't know how much you've read on the interwebs, but I don't think there's a lot of thoughtful typing going on. But um, nevertheless, I, you know, doing a little research into it, I kind of, um, I would read something, a definition of it. I was particularly looking for introvert. Because um, I always like to insist that I am an introvert, and um, some people don't believe me, except, you know, those who know me best. But I don't know. I was trying to, I was trying to figure it out, thinking introvert, extrovert. So I was trying to, what actually is the definition of an introvert? And as I read through these different definitions, different articles, different studies, I began, I think, to be able to tell if that particular article was written by an introvert or an extrovert. Um, for instance, this one, introvert, a person opposite of extrovert, a person who is energized by spending time alone, often found in their homes, libraries, quiet parks that not many know about, or other secluded places. Introverts like to think and be alone. Contrary to popular belief, not all introverts are shy. Some may have great social lives and love talking to their friends, but just need some time alone to recharge afterwards. The word introvert has negative connotations that need to be destroyed. Introverts are simply misunderstood because the majority of the population consists of extroverts. 
I bet a lot of you are nodding along thinking, yes, I think that is a very accurate definition of an introvert. But there's another one. Um, this great that is, provides us with um, a lot of insight. Uh, introvert from uh, the Cesarus is a noun, a person who retreats mentally. A brooder, an egoist, a loner, a narcissist, solitary, a wallflower, autist, self-observer. I wonder who wrote that one. <laughs> you know, it's funny, our popular notion now, this idea of what is an introvert and what is an extrovert, is almost like culturally entirely based on the Myers-Briggs test. That is one of the, the, the continuums, right? Introvert, extrovert. And they um, cribbed their notion of introvert, extrovert from Carl Jung, who kind of began to describe it. And they took almost his definition, except they left out the part at the beginning where Jung specifically is referring to whether or not your sexual energy is directed inward or outward. But the rest of it made sense from them once they took that out. Um, yeah, we all know that, that definition, right? It's like an introvert, if you're an introvert, you get energy from being alone. If you're an extrovert, you get energy from being with other people. Um, sometimes you might find that both seem to be true and you're confused because, like everything, we know the world is black and white and you want to put yourself in a camp. Well, there's help on the interwebs. You may be an extrovert or you may be an introvert. You can take a test. This is very helpful to you. Let's see. Answer these questions along. Um, you might be an introvert if you find small talk incredibly cumbersome. You go to parties not to meet new people, but to talk to your friends. You often feel alone in a crowd. Networking makes you feel like a phony. You've been called too intense or too thoughtful. You're easily distracted. Downtime doesn't feel unproductive to you. You start to shut down after you've been active for too long. You actively avoid any sh um, shows that might involve audience participation. That must, might just be an um, aversion to magic. Um, you screen all your calls, even from your friends. You notice details in a way that others don't. You have a constantly running inner monologue. If you've just asked yourself, I wonder if I do in your head. <laughs> you are a writer. I wonder who wrote this. I think this, well, I didn't read the 20, all 23 of them, but it seems to me that the author of this had a mirror propped up in front of their computer and just simply described themselves. Um, it's interesting whether you want to be an introvert or an extrovert. I mean, there seems to be like a lot at stake here. People want to claim that, you know, no, the whole world is this way, but I'm this way. I think, you know, you find small talk incredibly cumbersome. I think that's being a person, you know? Yeah, networking makes you feel like a phony. I think it means because you're not a jerk. You know, I mean, I don't know, but, but you know, but uh, I am a writer, so I guess. 
Now, the author of the book of Acts reports, describes the giving of the Holy Spirit in a very extroverted way, a very dramatic way. Jesus' disciples had just seen Jesus ascend into the sky, and then a rushing wind and tongues of fire come shooting back down through the sky and go all around them and enter them, and they start speaking in foreign languages and proclaiming the good news of God's reconciling love to everyone. And people are amazed. People are amazed and they believe, and thousands are added to their numbers, the book tells us. That is what the church calls Pentecost. And Pentecost is the Greek name for the Jewish festival of weeks, which celebrates the giving of the law of Moses on Sinai, which, if you remember your Hebrew Bible as much as you should, also came with a lot of rushing wind and fire. In Christianity, Pentecost is celebrated as the birth of the church, and it's celebrated with like all kinds of enthusiasm, excitement, elation, if you will. The Spirit of God, of the living Christ, is given to humans. And that Spirit transforms us and emboldens us to sing hallelujahs and praise and spread God's good news to every corner of the world. So a lot of churches try to really, you know, have a like a kind of a, like an upbeat kind of service for Pentecost. They hang like red banners all over the place. In the, all over the church, and they, they have parades and clowns and dog acts. Maybe not dog acts, but there's been some clowns, I can assure you. But you get the idea. It's a special, big, happy, may I say, glorious celebration of the truly unbelievable second coming of God into the world, which is, of course, what Pentecost is. After Jesus has been executed, raised from the dead, appeared to the disciples, ascended into heaven, Jesus sends the Spirit of God to live in and among his followers. And this second coming of God into the world reveals to Jesus' followers that Jesus, the man, is also, in fact, Jesus the Christ, God. The presence of the, Holy, this presence of the Spirit of Christ living in and among Jesus' followers places within and among them, a passion to proclaim the message of love and reconciliation to the world, as Jesus did. That seems good. This act, I think, we should celebrate on the day of Pentecost. I mean, it is really nothing less than the birthday of the church. Because it's only when Jesus' followers come out of hiding and begin sharing God's good news with others beyond their own group, only when the power of the Holy Spirit that comes within them, that's when they start living out Jesus' new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Only then do they become the church. The church. The church which is primarily given for the world. So all of which is worthy of celebration in the most grand ways possible. But uh, at House of Mercy, we've never really managed to, uh, you know, celebrate Pentecost with the expected fervor, maybe. We've never really done the whole Red Banner thing. It's nice that Hamlin Church has done it for us. We can kind of get in on that. I mean, I don't even know where they get these Red Banners. 
I mean, I've been in the church business a long time, and I've never run across a place where you get them. I mean, there must be some kind of Pentecost shop. I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't been there. But, I don't know, maybe it's okay that we don't have some big, over-the-top, charismatic ballyhoo. Because, you know, maybe we're just really not that much of a charismatic church. Does this come as a surprise to you? Maybe, but maybe, you know, a simple acknowledgement is okay. A simple acknowledgement of the giving of the Spirit of God into the world to empower Jesus' original followers to be emboldened to spread his commandment of love and reconciliation, thus establishing the church. Maybe just that acknowledgement is more our style. Maybe sort of a... That's, that's good. That's, that's, that's good. Maybe that's more like us. That's all we need. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a little more emotion at Pentecost would be nice. Maybe we could do that. I suppose in the spirit of the day, I could try to deliver my ironic and cynical witticisms in a more charismatic manner. Or as the French say, charismatique manner. Maybe we could all be a little bit more crazy, have a little bit more of a crazy attitude. I could, you know, give it a try. Hallelujah to the Lord. Wahoo to Jesus. Holy Spirit Day. Feel free to join in. This is full-out crazy praise time. Super hallelujah. Yankee hallelujah dandy. Hallelujah. Maybe not. Maybe we're just not a charismatic church. You know, maybe you're just not a charismatic kind of people. We work with what we have here. You know? I mean, how do the French say you are non-charismatique? I'm sorry for all the French, but it's Pentecost and the foreign language thing, you know? I know some of us, you know, at some times in our lives have expressed our faith in a more effusive manner than maybe we do now. I know some of you still, some of us, we still do, you know, when people aren't looking, sneak into the back pew of a Pentecostal church from time to time to get something that maybe House of Mercy doesn't offer, which of course is great. You know, you can't always get everything you need in one place. After all, House of Mercy is a church, not the church. But it does seem to me that folks, you know, a lot of folks who find their way here and stick around are looking sort of a different way to interact with God. Which again, and I don't need to give you permission, is okay. This is, this, um, this is where I've sort of been in recent years, the more, I don't know, thinky praise, could you call it? Um, so, yeah. What does that mean? I mean, does it mean that you can't have a good Pentecost if you're not Pentecostal? Can you be an introverted Pentecostal? I don't know. So we can maybe we can just say, hey, look at, you know, House of Mercy, Pentecost is not our forte. Oh, I'm sorry, I did it again. Um, maybe we can say it's not our forte, and uh, we just stick with focusing on, you know, the Feast of Jonah, going down in the darkness, a Good Friday, Kierkegaard's birthday. You know, the high holidays. But, you know, well, 
Thankfully, there is an alternative to Luke's version of Pentecost as described in the second chapter of Acts. It's right here that we read today, right in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. And the contrast of the two Pentecost options is really quite remarkable. And Luke's version is big and violent, powerful and miraculous. Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from the heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled their entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue reached and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. John's Pentecost happens in a more low-key way. First of all, they're hiding. They're hiding in this house with all the doors locked because they thought that the Jewish religious leaders were going to come after them for being followers of Jesus. Or even worse, they thought maybe the Romans were going to come after them and execute them because it was a crime in the Roman Empire to disturb a grave, a crime punishable by death, and there had been some speculation that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body to make it look like he'd risen. So they're locked in this house, scared, hiding. So in the midst of their locked hideout, Jesus appears. The text says, Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus is right there with them, next to them. And because they're scared, he comforts them. Peace. He says, peace be with you. And he shows them his wounds. He shows them that he's not a ghost or a spirit, but Jesus, the man who they followed, who was their teacher, and who they abandoned, and who was executed, and now is alive, who is once again with them, next to them, and speaking to them, not words of judgment, but of comfort, peace. Again, he says, peace be with you. And then he entrusts them with his mission, makes them a part of God's unfolding revelation to the world. He includes them, saying, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. And we know from Jesus' words earlier in John's Gospel that God sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but to love the world, to save it. It is in this way that Jesus now sends the disciples, the followers, and then, and this is John's Pentecost moment, he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. Breathes on them. This is not violent tongues of fire shooting down from heaven and flying all around the room and sounding like a tornado. It's a breath. Who breathes on you? How close do you have to be to feel somebody's breath on you? How well do you have to know someone to have them breathe on you and to not have it irritate you or concern you or creep you out or gross you out? Isn't this how we get sick? Isn't this the way germs are transmitted from one person to another? Isn't this the way disease is spread? This is infection. It's also very intimate. 
It is holding someone you love and feeling their breath on your neck. It is intimate. It's physical. It is a connection, almost a touch. Breath which comes out of the mouth of one living creature and can reach another living creature invisibly without removing the spatial distance between them. It is in this way God reveals God's self in John's gospel. God's spirit comes not down from heaven, but from within the same room, from next to you. Not in a loud and triumphant way, but as the sound and feel of a breath. It is God who comes to us, God who gives God's self to us as we inhale. We are infected with the love of God, with the ability to bring that love to others. Because Jesus gives the Spirit not for our own reassurance or comfort, but for others. In both Luke's and John's Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given not to individuals in isolation, but given to the community of believers gathered together. The Spirit, as Jesus promises earlier, dwells in them and among them so that they are able to love the world and one another as they have been loved, to breathe in and out together. This is not a distant God raining fire from above, but God who comes to us, God who comes so close that we breathe him in. That seems to me like good news. Can I get an amen?